In this episode of Sustainability Matters Today, I speak with Alex Watson, the co-founder of the Climate Cocktail Club, London branch, and a champion for shaping the conversation on climate change. In 2017, Alex published an article called My Case for Doing Business More Sustainably, where he wrote about the possibility for companies to put purpose before profit in order to create social or environmental benefits while generating enough revenue to be financially sustainable. After completing Al Gore's climate reality training, Alex brought the Cocktail Club, which is a collaboration platform for professionals who want to solve the climate challenge, to London in 2019. Please make sure to subscribe to the Sustainability Matters Today podcast to learn more about other champions of sustainability like Alex. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Alex, thanks for being on the show. Great to have you join me here. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. And are you in? Are you based in London right now? That's right. Yeah, I'm in centre of London near St Paul's, and uh, yeah, nice and cold this morning. Very nice. Yeah, it is chilly, um, and that's actually something that I'm noticing as well. This is we're recording right now in the morning, eight a.m., which I actually typically don't do. I usually do most of my recordings in the evenings, just for whatever reason. The schedule is a bit easier that way for most people, but. Um, Morning recordings are really nice. It's quieter, a little less frantic, but it's um, be- or middle of December. And one thing I'm still getting used to, I don't know, you're probably used to this coming from the UK, is just how dark it gets. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, like this- it can get fairly depressing, although... Yeah, I imagine. I was talking to someone from uh, who's, li- who's near Glasgow, and I gave him a call at around 8 a.m., and he said that the sun hadn't quite come out yet. It was just starting to peak out behind the mountains but yeah imagine if you're even further north in the nordics it's really dark well my theory about the uh, the winter in london is that it makes the summer all the more fun because people know it doesn't last forever so that's absolutely true yeah coming from california that's something that i certainly um appreciate more here is is warm weather much more so than i ever did living in los angeles and speaking of warm weather you actually came recently from Madrid. That's right. Yes. So I was at the at the COP uh, conference of the parties, the UN Climate Conference. Yeah. And yeah, I was there for a couple of days with work. Yeah. How was it? It was. It was. Uh, it was, so it was my first one I've been to, and okay. I, I guess a couple a couple of observations. Um, one, having sat in on a an informal negotiation, realize the task of sixty different. Well, in, in that case, it was 60 different countries trying to move forward on on a particular subject is just a bit of a nightmarish one because obviously everyone's got to say, everyone's got their own piece to add. And and so, <clears throat> yeah, I, I it kind of made me realize that, of, of course, it's no no wonder that the UN process has, has taken such a long time to arrive at. Uh, you know something in in the form of the, the Paris Agreement. The the Paris Agreement was uh, organized at. A That's COP right. Yeah. So well, that right. was the COP back in 2015. And just for some for background, just um, before we kind of go into it further, what exactly is a COP or conference? Yeah. So <clears throat> so it's it was set up by the UN's climate organization, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and there. First one was back in the 90s, and essentially this is the, the sort of UN body that was set up to do something about climate change. Now, it was modelled, if you like, on, on uh, something 
uh, that the UN had organized before to, to deal with the hole in the ozone layer, uh, which is to kind of get, um, oh. you know, get countries together, come up with some rules uh, to deal with it. But whereas, you know, the ozone layer was being, hole in the ozone layer was, was being caused by some refrigerant gases that really there was no big trouble in just kind of coming together and banning them internationally. Obviously, banning yeah. fossil fuel extraction would, would create, you know, a huge crash in the economy um, and, you know, disrupt many people's lives in, in huge, profound ways. So it's not maybe quite as simple as that, um, as, as it's proved over the, the next, you know, 20 odd years in, in that it's quite slow progress to, to get something. Back at university, I, I learned economics and, you know, what they say about what my economics textbooks told me about, you know, negative externalities, which is to say, you know, a company is delivering its products, but may produce something that's to detriment of the, the environment. They call that an externality. And the way to resolve that is to, you know, bring a regulation across all companies that taxes that externality uh, to incentivize the companies to, to, you know, not pollute in that way. But really, there's no government organizer, there's no you know, world government that could just at one stroke make that, uh, make such a rule. And, you know, anything that goes through this UN uh, body that organizes these COP, you know, it has to be agreed by all of the countries. And, you know, for some countries, it's in their interest to not have such rules. And so that's kind of the fundamental why there's, there's a kind of fundamental slow uh, nature of the progress on climate change sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare from hell it's just like you have governments which are slow as they are coming together to discuss how all the other governments can go do something to to try to change this thing which no one really understands and you have to kind of believe in in, in order to actually even take action on it in the first place. Yes, I mean, and, and that definitely was my sense of the, when I dipped into these informal negotiations is that, it re, you know, they, they were talking about when to schedule meetings, uh, when they get papers for those meetings, and, and that conversation went on for about 45 minutes. <laughs> um, but, but, but what I would say is that the Paris Agreement did deliver something. It delivered a clear... Uh, you know, direction of travel in terms of trying to limit uh, global warming um, to two degrees with some efforts to pursue 1.5 degrees. And, and that sets and, and also a process by which governments can make their um, commitments and, and compare them and then hopefully increase the ambition on them. So, you know, it has delivered something um, which is mostly to just set a framework by which governments and then, you know, the rest of society can kind of plug in towards that goal of limiting. Yeah. And so since the the Paris Agreement, which seems kind of like a, a momentous kind of coming together and everyone is uh, agrees on the same thing, more or less, except for the US now, um, but it's been four years since that agreement has been made. So these COPs now, is it basically like checking in and sort of how are we getting on to reaching those goals? What else can we do sort of thing or what? That's definitely going to be the emphasis on the next next year's one. Uh, it's going to be a, a kind of what they call, a, I think, a stock take um, of Five years. The, the countries. Yeah, that's right. Um, but 
this year, they're, 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 one of the main focus is around setting the rules by which um, countries can trade carbon emission reductions. So, you know, if given that it's easier to deliver emission reductions, it's, it's less expensive to deliver emission reductions in some countries rather than others. Um, how can that be of assistance in the process of, of hitting our global target? And, and there need to be rules that are kind of set around that. So that's the emphasis of this this COP. Yeah. And based on what what you saw in dipping in and out of these informal negotiations, and um, I mean, you, I think you were there for about four or five days. Yeah, four days. Yeah, uh, four days. Yeah. So I'm sure you've you heard a lot of different people talking in various environments, for lack of a better word. Is there? Do you feel like there's any hope? I mean, are, are or is it sort of like everyone's just going in circles and it really is just bureaucracy trying to overcome bureaucracy, trying to overcome bureaucracy? And uh, so yeah, I, th- I think that there were a few elements of both hope and despair. Um, what, what's interesting is, you know, in many ways it feels like a, a kind of conference and, <clears throat> and it's, you know, good for your networking. There's lots of relevant people to talk to, but they also throw in a yeah. load of, youth activists into the main uh, conference center not into the negotiations but um, mm. that that really does kind of change the dynamic and it means that um you know people business leaders but also uh, you know leading kind of ngo commentators face some pretty uh, upfront and direct questions um how do you sleep at night and uh, to, words to that effect yeah. as well so actually some of the, for me, some of the most sort of oh, powerful intense. moments that I saw were, were when some of those, you know, tougher uh, questions were, were asked. So I've, you know, I, le- I definitely left with, with some sense of hope. There's, um, you know, these tough conversations are going on and, um, you know, people are seem to be kind of rowing in, in the, in the, the right direction. So yeah, I, I didn't leave too disheartened. That's good. That's really. I'm glad to hear it because sometimes you hear about these big, these big kind of conferences, and it, it's basically what you were saying: sixty countries sitting in a room. There's such a wide range of economic uh, levels in terms of what they're trying to achieve, and um, I'm sure you have a broad range of climates that those countries live in um, or, or are based in. And, and so it's just how how do how does everyone get on the same page to accomplish this this goal and I'm I'm just, I'm glad to hear that there is a level of uh, kind of optimism, so to speak, a little bit. Yeah, <clears throat> and and some of that is expressed less as as optimism. It's more a kind of we must do this. Um, you know, that's definitely oh, right. the the impetus from the contributions. For example, Greta or Greta uh, Thunberg was there, and oh, uh, wow. she. You know, she she gave a speech to, I think, estimated to be five hundred thousand, uh, mostly Spaniards who just gathered to see see her. So, so yeah, I think it's not necessarily a feeling of optimism. It's it's a feeling of you know we must find a way of doing this. And did you see her talk? I did. Yeah, yeah. So I went along. What did you think of her energy and kind of just her presentation? It's it's very different from many of the corporate speakers that I had heard during the conference that's for sure, yeah, you know, sure. it's, it's yeah. very kind of um somber and uh yeah very kind of well considered 
you know, my, my view is that Greta has been absolutely amazing uh, in moving things forward in, in people's consciousness and, and awareness. She's mobilized, you know, over a million young people to go out and strike. And those million people have parents and, and guardians and, and those you know, million school children are in communities, in schools. And the effect of that, I think, has been huge in increasing awareness about climate change and the need for action. So I'm, yeah, I have kind of enormous respect for, for what Greta has done and all of the other activists as well working on that, on, on the, the kind of the young people's movement. And I think, yeah, in it, it yeah. changes the rest of the dynamic. It changes how countries um, see things because some of them are facing populations that are a lot more aware and want to see more climate action. And then also uh, in terms of companies and what how they're acting because they know many of the consumers both now and in the future increasingly will want to see uh, companies and buy from companies that have are taking you know, climate action that is addressing the the you know, urgency that we that we are faced with. It's not about achieving something by the end of next year. It's about 2030 and the, the need that in order to give us a chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees, we need to have made a 45% emission reduction across the world by 2030. Yeah. So really, you know, I think the, the school strikes seem to be mobilizing around that goal you know, it's not now, it's now not a case of Greta on her own. It's, it's a, a huge movement, but I think it's, yeah, dragging society in the right direction. Yeah. Dragging is an interesting word. Um, and I, I think you mentioned something interesting about the kind of, well, at least the way I'm interpreting it is basically it's a signal. Yeah. Mobilizing so many people is a signal yep. both to governments, which is very important, uh, and also to companies. And I think that's something I, I'm really interested in, in terms of what you do kind of on a, on a bigger picture in terms of focusing on how companies and corporations can limit basically yeah. what they're, what, how, what they can do to help with climate change or reducing it and so on. And, and um, you wrote this behemoth of a report, 28 pages, called Deeds, Not Words, um, The Growth of Climate Action in the Corporate World. Um, the reason I'm so interested in this, and because when I when I first started this podcast, I came in with the idea that my, I guess you can say my hypothesis was that um, I think individual people have the biggest leverage in terms of change because of consumer demand. As an individual, if I'm starting to buy only organic produce, for example, or I'm sourcing all of my electricity from a green energy provider, then you know companies are going to start to shift and change toward towards that, and they're going to start providing that. The more I'm, I'm talking to experts and people in the field like you, the more I'm realizing that it's perhaps a little bit more complicated than that, and it's not quite as straightforward. Um, and you really do need someone like Greta. Um, forgive my American accent on how I'm pr pronouncing that, but her name, but, um, but you do need mobilization because otherwise it's, it's hard for a company to realize that, you know, little Daniel over, over in London is demanding green energy and that's not enough. But 
someone like Greta, who's going out and mobilizing millions of people and saying, we want green energy, we want XYZ or XYZ, then um, I think companies really start to think, okay, we need to start offering this on a bigger scale because people will, well, is, is that what you're, is that what you're seeing? And as in, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'll start by saying businesses whilst they're mostly controlled by shareholders and, you know, of which their, their investors are, are big, big influences. Businesses are run by people and, and people will perceive opportunities and risks as they run their business. Now that means there are decisions that they can take about, you know, the strategic, and, and you know, people call these strategic decisions. You know, do you take a a move in your business in the next five years? We want to do this thing, or do we want to do that thing? And where are we going to focus our efforts? And you know, I think if increasingly the one of the things that's coming to the you know boardrooms to um, the the key decision makers in in companies is around climate change, and I think that's Whilst that's driven by you know individuals doing making decisions, be it you know in their shopping basket or individual employees maybe writing emails and and letters and organising meetings, I think really whilst those individual actions do demonstrate something, I think the leadership and the, the yeah the strategic kind of leadership that businesses can can take you know can mean that action can really leap forward um far quicker than purely just mobilizing more and more consumers and and more and more employees around this so the the consumers and the employees are essential to to any kind of progress uh, in terms of sustainability within business because they they present uh, you know, a question to the leadership of a company about, you know, are our products climate, um, you know, sustainability proof, if you like. Um, but whilst they present them a question, I think it then, you know, it then is incumbent upon the lead, the leadership of the company to kind of yeah. take take a, a stance and, and hopefully a leap um, forward. So, and one example would be a company can offer a sustainable alternative you know it could have 95 percent of its products the same as they they ever were and five percent to appeal to the likes of you who wants to buy a sustainable alternative and and that's really not going to move us forward uh, you know as as quickly as we need to so really what i think the you know what i think is happening what what i'm seeing is that you know the fact that there's five ten percent of consumers kicking up a fuss or and also employees companies are then thinking well actually you know this in a few years this is going to be 50 60 percent and and therefore they they take a, a call that across the whole business they're going to do things differently and, and i think that's what came out in the r- report you know since since the paris agreement four years ago the climate actions or commitments to deliver climate actions by 2030 have quadrupled and that's now means that they're up to 23% of what we looked at the Fortune 500 Global, which is the 500 biggest companies by revenue. So these aren't just the kind of ethical, organic alternatives. These are the, the, 
the biggest companies uh, in the world and, and to have a quarter of them already uh, co committed to uh, climate action we'll, we'll go on to maybe the details of that action but to have a quarter of them either delivering climate action already or committed to do so by this key deadline of 2030 for me is a sign that many companies are taking this uh, leap in what they're doing and, and and that many of them have done that in the last four years yeah committing is an interesting word um because it it's this a quarter of Fortune 500 global companies, and this is basically the very first thing that your um, Deeds Not Words report says, is um, a quarter of Fortune 500 global companies have made a public commitment that they are or will be by 2030 carbon neutral, using 100% renewable power or meeting a science-based emission reduction target. And I think that word commitment is interesting because it basically says, it's like an IOU, it's, they're basically promising, but they haven't actually done anything yet. I agree. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that many of those commitments will land. I think a couple of things to say. One is there's there was, you know, I think about um, between five to ten percent of those um, Fortune 500 companies are already acting. So they are already either carbon neutral or using 100 percent renewable power. Yeah, that's like um, we were talking about uh, VMware meeting their their carbon neutrality. Yes, um, yeah, that's one example. But I agree that you know a public commitment to do something by 2030 is, you know, it's something that there's no kind of big penalty if they row back from that, other than you know the fact that they could be criticised publicly. So so there is a small cost for for them to back out. So, so yeah, it's something that we, we have to watch. But I think even if we just took the ones that have already delivered on those commitments, we're still looking at a significant number. I think by the end of uh, 2020, that will be, uh, you know, 10%. And, and that, you know, of the biggest companies in the world across the board is still significant, particularly when you, you know, you're looking at the change compared to four years ago. By no means, um, it's not enough. Um, but I think what the argument we're, we're trying to you know, make with the report is the fact that of these biggest, you know, over the years, these have been the most profitable companies because they you know, built up their, their revenues to such an extent they're in the 500 biggest companies. If they are finding it in their benefit to do these climate actions, then clearly there, there's, there must be a commercial case for it. These are not just doing it out yeah. of the, the goodness of their hearts. Uh, well, some of them might be, but th the fact that there are so many of them uh, suggests that, you know, that this is now in the commercial benefit of yeah. these companies. That was, that's exactly the point that, um, what I was trying to say when I was saying, when I started the podcast, it's exactly what I was going for is that sustainability isn't sustainable um, unless there's a financial kind of component to it, meaning it has to be financially beneficial to a company in order for them to be so motivated. Um, otherwise, it, it, becomes a it becomes a cost and it's very difficult to justify to um, a lot of people, especially at, at the level of Fortune 500 companies, you're, you're answering to a lot of people. First of all, you have your board and then you have all of your investors who are looking to you to make money. 
So the sustainability element needs to, I would imagine, help the bottom line. Yep. You had another report, um, or rather an article called My Case for Doing Business More Sustainably, um, where, where you talk about exactly this. This is really interesting. So sustainability, and w- when I was talking with um, with Natasha Tuck from VMware, um, she was saying that it at VMware, there is a good business case for uh, basically taking sustainability and, and um, using it within the company. Uh, and she had a couple of reasons why, but I'm curious to know, or rather curious to hear what your thoughts are, perhaps on a bigger scale rather than just at one company, what you see or have seen, especially through your work with natural capital partners? Yeah, I, th- I think I see the biggest two things uh, and the biggest two drivers of the commercial case of being more sustainable are getting customers and getting the best employees. Now, there are others. There are, you know, the financial, the pressure from the you know, investors, as you mentioned, the maybe the threat of future regulation. Um, but and 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 also some you know cost savings that can can come from being more sustainable. But for me, I see those two as the biggest. I think you know some of that goes back to what I did in a in a previous uh, walk of life, which is when uh, helping startup ventures to to run crowdfunding campaigns. And I saw that in helping you know I was helping build the the sales proposition for these startups as they went live with their effectively their first sales campaign. And many of them had these, you know, social and environmental um, bits that were part of their proposition because their business was doing things a bit different, doing things a bit differently. And yeah, I, I feel that seeing that um, social and environmental mission and and action of those companies really helped um, get those startups extra uh, you know free marketing got the proposition across to the customers so so i i i think that that's important and given the the jump in awareness about climate change that we've seen as as a consequence of what we talked about around the school strikes you know i i see that benefit only increasing i think the other one is again coming from that public awareness is is the, the thing around em, employees and you know there's we we have uh, at natural capital partners we have many many clients out over on the west coast of america tech companies and and yeah many of them are you know they want to hire the brightest and the best um you know software developers i'm sure many other things as well and and <clears throat> they know that those those people um going into jobs are kind of facing decisions about what they they want to do given that you know climate change is becoming more visible to them so yeah i i see that those two are the the kind of biggest drivers um and and that's what as i said it, it it might not be landing on the company's bottom line to require them to change everything drastically today but i think the you know those business leaders that are perceiving the opportunities and risks of the business in the next five, 10 years and making decisions about that are thinking, well, we're already seeing this, you know, in terms of the hitting sales and, and our ability to hire. So we need to make a bigger change that really secures us for the future. Yeah. It's, um, that's very similar. I would say to what Natasha was saying 
in, I think it was episode two, where we where I was asking her the exact same question, what is it? Um, and she said, or what is the reason why it's so important for VMware to do, you know, to, to focus on sustainability? Because um, they have a sustainability division. And at the time, they only had four people, but they are devoting resource and, and energy, obviously, to it. Um, and she said the exact same thing that, first of all, customers are now asking. They they A big part of her and her team's job is to basically go through these requests forms that that customers send them to say, okay, tell tell us um, about VMware's kind of carbon footprint and what you're doing to mitigate all of that stuff before we, this, it's an important factor in our consideration for a vendor. So that's number one. And then number two, exactly like what you said uh, again with employees, she said that more and more, whenever they do interviews with um, with people for any role, that's a, a, an important factor that um, potential employees ask about is, you know, what is, is VMware sustainable? Yes or no. And, you know, if, if they have kind of, well, I'm not sure, I'm, you know, sort of sustainable, not really, people lose interest because there are other companies that are doing it. Um, and like you said, again, going back to the younger people, this is now the workforce. The millennials are are really entering the workforce uh, in a big way now. So, and for, I think for a lot of millennials, um, sustainability is, is a very important value with um, where they work and kind of what they do. So yeah, it's interesting that that's kind of across the board as well. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not necessarily, I'm almost, I'd say it's not necessarily a value in that, you know, millennials are kind of grown up in a throwaway culture. Um, mm. I don't think sustainability is embedded in many, yeah. many millennials' values, but I think it's <laughs> more like a pragmatic thing, you know, yeah. having, you're seeing extreme weather events, making you realize this is happening, taking on board some of these, you know, big kind of scientific uh, discoveries about how quickly the climate is changing makes this a kind of more pragmatic thing for um, that, that yeah. this, my generation uh, of, um, we don't want to, you know, be, be in a world 30 years down the line where, you know, things are extreme weather events are happening, you know, incredibly frequently. So it's, yeah, not necessarily a values thing. It's more, you know, maybe a more more pragmatic thing now. Yeah, yeah it's a good point. You did the climate reality training uh, with Al Gore. Uh, and I, yep. so I, quick backup, and normally we're kind of doing this all um, all backwards, but, but you and I met at um, the Climate Cocktail Club London edition. That's right, yeah. Um, and I, I want to hear more about this. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to kind of, I'd like to start with climate reality training and then move into the CCC. Um, but I, I met someone else there at the Climate Cocktail Club who was also part of this climate reality training. And she was telling me a little bit about it. And I, I actually had never heard of it, which um, is a little embarrassing to say. <laughs> but it um, when I looked into it, it looked really interesting and the way she was describing it sounded almost too good to be true <laughs> because um it but yeah I'd, I'd love to to understand a little bit more about what is it um how does it work and sort of what are you expected to do after the training yeah so climate reality training was set up by al gore and I, the way i see it is it's essentially him taking his documentary, the Incon- an inconvenient truth, and doing that 
you know, that talk, that content in real life with people, spreading it across a couple of days. So generally it's Al Gore going around, doing, delivering training. And then there's a number of other sessions, panels, uh, speakers as well, but it's, it's free for, for attendees. There's, you know, real, real diverse um, mix of people there from, you know, all across the world, but also all ages, you know, um, 18 to 80. Uh, and wow. it's, yeah, so the aim is that you understand more about climate reality. So what is happening in our climate? And then what, what can you do about it? Sorry, just to, to clarify the training, what exactly, the word training to me sounds like uh, military training or, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm somehow <laughs> yeah. picturing like, it's not just an educational thing where you're like, oh, that was interesting. Um, yeah, it's no, that's fair. It, so it's, it's both educational, you know, it tells you yeah. the stats, how climate change works, what it's going to affect in terms of the health, um, you know, economy, politics. But then yeah. also it, it's training you to go and do something about it and particularly around mm. the communication of it. So, right, it, okay. you know, there's, you, you then get given a slide deck and it's a slide deck that Al Gore's built that huh. you want to, you know, they, they want you to go and do it. And you, by doing the training, you commit to give uh, in the, the year that follows your training 10 uh, acts, what they call acts of leadership, and, you know, the, mm. the, the kind of standard one would be to go to your, be it friends, workplace, you know, a community of people that you know and deliver a presentation about climate change. So, yeah, I did um, a couple of things following that. I actually did a, a climate reality presentation to the inmates of a, a, a prison in North London uh, where, where I live. So that as part of the education in the wow. prison, you know, we had a, f a dozen um, inmates come and, and learn about climate change. And, and so I did a couple of different presentations and then I'd come across uh, the, the climate cocktail club in Dublin uh, uh, set up by a colleague and a friend of mine, Tom Popple and, and his friend Ray. And, and they were just, finding that, you know, evening, informal evening events with a couple of speakers and a few drinks was attracting, a, you know, a lot of people um, to come and find out more about climate change, meet some interesting people. And, and I just thought, well, look, London's kind of ripe for this. There's many, you know, many things going on uh, that, you know, get kind of big, big uh, demand. So, I met, you know, talked to Joe uh, Alexander, who uh, who also did the climate reality training um, with with me, um, and we just thought, yeah, let's let's go ahead and do this in London, and and we did our first event uh, May this year. We had 150 people turn up. We had another 300 on our waiting list. Wow! And um, the next one, we you know we doubled our event size, so we had 300 turn up. Again, we sold out. So, you know, there's, there's a big, big demand for um, what I would say inf more informal and fun ways to, uh, to learn, to process and to, you know, maybe even plot and plan um, doing something about climate change. And I think for me that it's important because 
we need to kind of change the conversation about climate change. You know, if you bring it up around a dinner table, everyone's eyes might roll because we're going to spend the next five minutes talking about something that's, yeah, it's about, you know, threatening our existence on the planet and mm. it's not a fun uh, topic. We're not trying to, you know, make it super light and fun and funny um, without having that serious element, but we are trying to uh, like make a space where people can have a conversation that they actually kind of want to be a part of and and can both find more things out, but also have have a, you know, an interesting time of it as well. So yeah, we've been having some speakers, we've been putting up some boards and quizzes and and games as well and obviously laying on a few cocktails and and that's the climate cocktail club and and we'll be having a few more events in in the new year no doubt yeah it sounds like well i i I was at one of them and they were it it was fantastic i thought um so i I went to the one i believe it was in early november um if i'm not mistaken and um and it was just the room was buzzing everyone seemed to be having a good time there was um uh, I, there, yeah, like you said, drinks, cocktails, um, and certainly sounds like a lot less, well, maybe that's not fair, but, uh, it certainly sounds, a, I was going to say a lot less pressure, but I think it's, it's more casual than delivering a climate talk to, uh, inmates. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's, yeah, organizing a massive event like that is certainly comes with its own different type of pressure, but I, th- I think it's a really great way to, like you said, um, to have a conversation in a very, um, there's, it's, it's not a very formal setting. Um, you kind of just come after work. Um, it, it, the vibe is very friendly overall. And what I liked about it is when I was there, I, I, I felt like, um, we're all here together to, to, uh, to do something. Um, but it, but it didn't have any sort of like kind of dogmatic feel to it where you know I, I wasn't worried like oh here we go we're about to like go march and demand things to happen and change it's more um we're here to have a conversation and, and sort of try to understand how we can work together more effectively um and i think that's a a more productive way sometimes to approach them yeah i th- i think you know there are things out there that are Here's your action. Yeah. Here's what you go and do. You know, Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. Yep. There you become go. a part of that if you want to be arrested. Yeah. Um, now, that's not for everyone. And we, there are a heap of other things out there, you know, many of which we kind of signpost at these events on some of these boards about what other things people can get involved with. But yeah, we, we ultimately, you know, we're not in a position to say this is the the, the one thing that's going to solve yeah. uh, climate change, and and that I think goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's not necessarily about getting one person to take an individual action. I think it's about getting people to see that other people around them are also interested in this, and maybe together, you know, we can uh, kind of do something a lot quicker than than just you know, me changing something in my life. Because ultimately, if, you know, if, if, if it's more expensive, if it's more hassle to, to do many of the, the low carbon things today, then only a small portion of the population will do them. So I very much, you know, have the view that we've got to try and figure out ways of 
making it easier for kind of everyone to to do stuff that's more sustainable yeah yeah absolutely absolutely I, I agree with that um and i think that's that's actually something that i've been um that's one of the benefits of talking to so many different people about this is i was definitely of the opinion at first that it's all about individual action um what can i do to basically reverse climate change almost as though i'm as one person can do it on my own but um yeah we're we're all in this together and it's definitely an action or multiple actions that basically everyone needs to take excuse me it comes back to the meme that i keep seeing on instagram which is along the lines of it's not about one person doing everything perfectly it's more about like a lot of pe- people just doing a little bit even if it's not perfect because that creates the momentum that um makes it easier for governments and companies to start picking up these uh, these trends and and making changes you mentioned the extinction rebellion i i know you only have a few minutes left but i'm i'm just so interested what you think about what they're doing because to me um extinction rebellion is uh well i always think there's greta and then there's Extin- extinction rebellion so so i think both both the the, the school strikers that you know Gre- greta has inspired and led and extinction rebellion are often kind of bundled in together yep. they've both done one thing you know they both sorry both of them have done one thing which is to increase public awareness yeah. about climate change to to start the conversation to get it in the media i think for me the the way that the school strikers have have gone about things means that there's going to be they are going to be more successful in the long run mm. you know there's a a, a lower barrier to entry you know any school kid could could take their friday off yeah. um, and whereas not everyone can take a week off and get arrested and that you know is kind of how it seems that extinction rebellion are kind of pitching themselves in terms of how you get involved so i i think they've been fantastic for increasing awareness uh, but I'm not sure they're going to achieve through through the means that they've or they've kind of set out already um, yeah. and and how they've gone about things you know they yeah so that's my piece on it yeah I think um I think it's a, an interesting point I never really I, ha- I hadn't considered sort of the long-term sustainability again of that kind of um type of action when I see what they're doing and hear about it I'm I always wonder you know what effect does this have on the people who were maybe on the fence or who are already sort of struggling to believe in climate change or who um think that it's not really important and then extinction rebellion comes in and you know they disrupt the bus the buses they disrupt tube they start disrupting flights um i i worry sometimes that it has an almost an adverse effect um yes it does get into the media but i i sometimes worry that the people who may be on the fence think, "Oh, God, here we go." The um, the climate people ruining ruining life for everyone again, and they sort of, you know what I mean? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but that that's always something I'm a little bit concerned about. Whereas Greta's work is much more peaceful, and it really is just about saying we want action, but we're not here to sort of disrupt your life, uh, yeah, kind of so intensely. 
my thoughts on that. Um, so <laughs> as we um, as we wrap up here, I'm curious to know, I know we've been talking about um, uh, kind of what we can do together, but out of, out of curiosity, um, I know that a lot of people are interested in what they can do individually in order to contribute to the whole. Um, so um, a question I like to ask is what can people do on a day-to-day basis or perhaps more directly, you know, what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis um, to be more sustainable that perhaps we can learn from? So I think when I, when I hit 30 and noticed <laughs> that, you know, my, um, my belly started to expand a little bit um, as, as age sometimes mandates, <laughs> I found that avoiding meat was a, a kind of easy way of eating less. So I've, you know, I, I avoid beef kind of entirely, but then probably on the meat front, I more just reduce it. You know, mm. I've got a, a cousin who's a pig farmer. When I go up there, I'm not going um, to turn down his, his fine produce. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's one thing that I've, I've done. And, you know, that's partly out of, as I said, the benefit to my, to my health as well. Yeah. I, um, I, I guess I just stop buying stuff that I don't need. So that's, you know, mm. clothes where I can avoid it, just stuff for my flat and just, yeah, just m- m- yeah, more conscious and thinking about, well, probably any item and physical thing that you buy, all the materials that have gone into that, you know, there are carbon emissions that, that go into that. So, so that, those are the things I've done. But I, I think I do want to just, uh, go go back a little bit to to what um you know we've talked about already in terms of not taking it all on yourself and I think for me this comes from my my mum a bit actually so my mum was an architect well is an architect still and she has always focused on low energy housing mm. and so she's you know, been um, a big kind of inspiration and and meant that I was aware of climate change for, from a young age and you know, talking about it around the dinner table. And I, yeah, I went through a phase where, you know, I was saying, saying to her, why aren't you recycling this? Why aren't you recycling that? You're meant to be, you know, trying to help the planet out. And and I think she, you know, in her defense, you know, working long days, um, coming home to uh, me and my brother, you know, yapping away, if not fighting. And I think, you know, her, her view is, well, yeah, I want to try and do something that affects, you know, these big new building projects um, rather than, you know, just spending my whole life making my own perfect house in, in order. So I've kind of taken on that, that inspiration. And it's also been, been a, you know, an, in, an inspiration for me in that I remember at 16 being, you know, probably all my, all my mates were off on, you know, holiday to some, surf town in in uh, Cornwall which is southwest England and and I was over in visiting a low carbon sustainable development in Sweden <laughs> um I, I remember that vividly because you know walking around those streets uh just seeing all the cyclists and just thinking well wow this is uh actually actually pretty nice way to live um yeah. so I yeah I've always had this thing in mind that is it's Yes, you know, where you can try, try to do things, but, but ultimately try to kind of 
feed in and do something that's that's part of the bigger picture and not just tidying your own plot up yeah yeah i think that's wise words um and and a good way to think about it it's a, it's a lot less pressure on you being perfect which can really freeze a lot of people um so uh i think that's a that's a great place to to end it alex thank you very much for your time and um, where if people wanted to learn more about Climate Cocktail Club and join the next one, I know also going onto the website that it's rapidly expanding, which is really exciting. So where can people uh, perhaps find you or find the Climate Cocktail Club or learn more about the work you're doing and maybe even join one of the next events? Sure. So, yeah, if you go on to climatecocktailclub.org, and if you check out the chapters, which are the different locations that we're running, uh, you can easily get in touch with us there. So we'd really encourage that. You know, that's even if you just want to come along to the next one or if you want to set up your own. Uh, so, yeah, or anywhere in between. So head, head over there. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I do encourage anyone listening um, to join the next event, whether it's in London or uh, perhaps somewhere else in the world, because you'll meet a lot of interesting people who are really passionate about the environment, about sustainability. And if it's something that you want to learn more about, it's a great place to to do it. Um, as Alex was saying, there's a lot of speakers. I think last time at the London event, or um, yeah, the London event in, in November, there was probably like five or 10 speakers. I, I lost track. There's a lot of different people talking about a wide variety or a wide range of topics so it's really interesting to hear um just different takes on what we can do together to achieve this goal of 1.5 degrees hopefully rather than two yeah on that note alex thank you so much for your time this was a lot of fun i'm, I'm glad we, we were able to connect thanks for having me daniel it's been been great to chat to you Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you want to learn more about Alex Watson and the Climate Cocktail Club in general, you can find them at climatecocktailclub.org. Uh, they have chapters that are all over the world now, so see if you can find one near you. Uh, you can also follow them on Instagram, at climatecocktailclub. You can check out all their latest updates. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe uh, and that way you'll be the first to know about new episodes. Also, give us a five-star review on the platform of your podcast listening choice. Uh, and if you're watching this on YouTube, hit subscribe there as well so you can be up to date when the next episode comes out. So once again, thank you so much and looking forward to speaking with you soon.